I would be appalled how many tabs I keep open at a time. Oh, well, that's why it takes us so long to start the podcast. I have to, like, figure out what to do with the 38 tabs that I've had open. That's the great thing about SSD and Chrome and and Safari now is you could just kill it all, and then when you open it back up, it'll bring it back up. What I do is I just force quit. I force quit Safari. I force quit Chrome. That's true. I just Do either of you use RackMap? No. Mm-mm. See, I, I'm I've become like a huge fan of Rackmelt, and I but they, they restored too. So even if you I know what, Rackmelt. this is actually a pretty good show already. So why don't we just start the show? Because like now we're actually talking about technology. What are you drinking, Brian? Uh, I am now drinking uh, Chimay Grand Reserve. Um, oh darn! Um, my first beer. Jeez, like I mean, I know it's so so. What so. about like track one, side one of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? I mean, it's just so cliche. So, so my first beer <laughs> was a was a Texas beer, and um, actually, I actually don't even have the bottle anymore. But it was either skunky or just really bad and so i just stopped and uh went back to the fridge and um it's always good to have some chamay on on backup so that's what i grabbed cool yeah can't go wrong i'm I'm very very happy nice (laughs) well um i am uh going the belgian ish route tonight as well with the commons brewery urban farmhouse um, and this is, I'm going to read the label cause it's actually good. Um, traditionally farmhouse ales were brewed on farms in the rural areas of Belgium. These beers were born out of necessity as most water was not potable and the farmers needed a refreshing beverage to offer the hardworking farmhands. Our rendition was developed in the spirit of that tradition. The beer pours golden with a floral nose, a soft underlying hot bitterness and a crisp finish. It's good. It's a good, solid, very light, summery belgian style beer and uh the breweries in southeast portland cool it's really good and it's big ass bottle and it's 5.3 so yeah this will be a fun show cool. what are you drinking corinne i'm drinking uh once upon a vine sauvignon blanc which, once upon uh, a vine where is that well like what what uh vineyard and stuff you know, it's funny. I got the bottle in here. I'm doing a little, I'm doing a little Google. Uh, it looks like it's in Virginia, maybe. Maybe not. No, that looks just like a a wine shop. I'm gonna have. Well, she's to on par with our here. normal level of research. Yeah. Our drinks. I, I might have to to send my my partner in crime here to go do a little background research on my my wine origins. But I. When I lived in Pennsylvania, we only have state stores, and, and so, like, I was conditioned to have to, you know, make special trips to buy alcohol. Now that I'm out in California, they just get everywhere, so I just uh, picked up a grocery store tonight. Was, I know, you can get alcohol in, like, roadside stands there. It's fantastic, it's, I have to you, say. People in Oregon act like you can't buy alcohol in Oregon or something. Like, they go to, they go to California to buy 
alcohol. And it's and mostly it's just that it's so much cheaper there because it's not yeah. taxed. And, and it's also the state-run thing here. So, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, I think that's one of the biggest differences between being in Philadelphia and here. In Philadelphia, it's all about microbreweries. And um, it, it's just, you know, beer, beer everywhere. Um, but then when I came out to California, and I, and I do typically prefer wine over beer, uh, the wine is so cheap and it's everywhere. And so it's been, it's been good. All right, so I have the bottle. It's a California Sauvignon Blanc. Um, and th- their website is thewinebar.com. That's pretty, that's pretty good. Um, but it doesn't really say where the oh, so no. uh, it's Diageo. I don't know how to say that one. Diageo Wines in Sonoma, California. Oh, Sonoma. There. So, so there you go. Well, I should say that people act like you can't buy liquor. I mean, Beer obviously is everywhere here, but like liquor is a th- <laughs> thing. You have to. Well, when you have so many good beers, it's. Yeah, I don't know if you even need the. Oh, I need the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but anyway. Cool. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, Brian, did you know we have Corrine Olbrich on the show tonight? I. Kind of guessed. I took a little guess. <laughs> Maybe that's who, 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 was, who that was. So I was hoping. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> well, Corrine, thank, thank you for sitting down and drinking with us. Um, so uh, normally we don't do a whole lot of introduction. Do you want to kind of introduce people and tell, tell them the, like, the big stuff about you? You have a lot of like, big stuff going on these days. I I feel like I always have big stuff going on. I get bored easily, so I'm constantly putting myself in the line of fire. Um, I have been kind of rounded about for a long time. Everything from teaching and um, helping start our school many moons ago to being a training manager at a software company, even farther out than that. Um, and then I uh, really kind of got involved in instructional design when I took a job um, as at a startup company that was focused on building online simulations. So it was really my first kind of instructional design job. And then spent a lot of time doing pharma sales training. <laughs> and, uh, and then got to the point that I was running kind of a little sub-company within a larger company and realized I could probably make more money if I was just doing that on my own and started um, my own company, Tandem Learning, which, oh, geez, how long ago did I? I guess it was a year two, and a half ago. Yeah, yeah almost two years ago. Yeah. A year and a half ago that we, um, we cashed out. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and around that time, I was working on and finishing, uh, well, I thought I was finishing my book, which I just finished last week, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took me a little bit longer to finish. In the meantime, moved from Philadelphia to California and took a job with uh, lynda.com as senior product manager for their Lynda Campus product, which really I'm kind of focused on product management for the academic market. So 
So basically future stuff that you can't talk a whole lot about. So, so yeah, a lot of my job is figuring out what's next um, and doing a lot of the, the market research and future planning and that kind of stuff, um, which is fun and also slightly frustrating um, because, uh, well, it's frustrating because I can't really talk too much about it. Um, even when I get really excited, we're in the midst actually of, of building up some really cool features for um, our multi-user products. So for anyone who doesn't know, Linda.com started out as kind of a consumer-focused company where anybody could go and uh, sign up and have access to this big, vast online library of courses on software and all kinds of photography, design, all kinds of stuff. And um, a couple years ago, they realized that organizations could actually benefit from access to the site as well. So because they had started out as a consumer company, they really didn't have as much expertise internally about how about organizational learning in general. And so, um, but they were selling um, selling the the product into a lot of universities and um, and then companies. So they decided that they should bring some people in that have that area of expertise. And that's why I, I was hired. There were a couple other people that were brought in around the same time. Um, and we've all been focused on kind of just the organizational learning side. So, so I feel like wow. a stranger in a strange land because I've always been just a, a B2B person um, mm-hmm. designing learning for organizations and I walked into a company where that was brand new. They were very focused on individual mm-hmm. learning. So. Yeah. Cool. So tell us about the big the celebration of the week that yes, you're finished with the book. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, super excited. And Justin and ASTD are excited too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's the most pre-show commentary on Twitter we've ever gotten. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It was was funny. It was actually pretty funny. He was like, ask her about the book. Um, (laughs) So, So, yeah, this this story. Normally, we like send out, hey, who wants to ask her questions? And Justin, first, you know, from ACD was like, ask her how it feels to be finished with her book. So It feels fantastic. I, um, so... The book I'll talk about a little bit, and then I'll talk about why he's so excited that I'm done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the book is uh, called Immersive Learning, and um, it's focused on design practices for creating, as as it says in the title, immersive learning experiences. So, how do you design for practice instead of um, just content presentation um, and knowledge acquisition? How do you actually designed to allow people to practice whatever skill it is that you want them to learn or improve. So about half of the book, the first half of the book is focused on design processes. And the second half is on uh, case studies and looking at um, common organization problems and how um, different people have designed immersive learning experiences to address them. So uh, more case study and practical focused and showing how that's been done. Um, but the cool part for me of the book was that because I'm focused on design process, I could actually talk about a lot of different 
applications of technology mm-hmm. and how you can use different technologies to create a sense of immersion or to create storyline or to help develop characters or um, to recreate, you know, common work practices and, um, and to automate feedback. So there's, there's kind of some interesting things um, that, uh, that I got to talk about and some really cool technologies that I got to showcase and um, talk about some good work people have been doing. But the reason why Justin was very excited is because um, I kind of got writer's block at, at the end of, or maybe two-thirds of the way through the process. Like, I had the book about 85% done. I had two chapters left to finish. And I just got stuck. I, I have no other explanation <laughs> for what happened other than I just couldn't, I couldn't finish. And so um, what actually I think kind of broke me out of it was I was just at Technology where I saw you, lovely <laughs> people. And, um, and I talked to Carl Kopp, who he and I were presenting a game design workshop and was just talking to him about, he's written several books. And, right. um, and I was talking to him about the process of writing and, and how I was stuck. And he said, oh, and I don't remember which book he said. He's like, one of my early books, maybe it was the first or second one. I was so depressed when I finished. Like, it took me six months to recover. And I kind of laughed and I was like, I wish I would have waited until after the book was done to, like, sink into this, like, slump. I can't quite finish. <laughs> <laughs> so when I came back from technology, I was like, wow, if Carl got over it and wrote a bunch more books, I can finish. And I, I came back and I just kind of sat down and finished them and submitted everything. And so it was, it was exciting. So I have to I have to give Carl credit. Nice. credit is He definitely kind of it, didn't even intend to. I don't he kind of like, kicked me in the butt about it. Um, Told you to shut up and write. Yeah, just by telling what kind of his experience of writing i think you know i've known a lot of people who have written books now and i've always been in awe of the effort and and work that it takes to do that but some people seem to do it so effortlessly so i was kind of beating myself up that i would that i got stuck and like so once i got past it and realized that it's not uncommon to actually get in that mode it made me feel much less alone Well, that's nice. Who who again writes books effortlessly? Jane Boza. <laughs> <laughs> I, she's probably written a book in the time we've been talking tonight. Prob- she's probably. already she's probably, probably done yeah one or two. Yeah. Every time I uh, talk to her, she's like, "I just submitted another book." I'm like, "Damn you, Jane! How can you write books so fast?" But it's the Diet no Mountain Dew. <laughs> yeah, yeah the and Diet, the Mountain, Diet Dew. Mountain Dew. There we go. Those two things. Um, I I was. I was listening to um, Ruben on e-learn chat the other day and he was talking about how he hit this place toward the end where it was like he had been all in his head for so long thinking the same thoughts, rehashing the same things and then, you know, his editor would send stuff back and it's just, he just got so sick of his own thoughts and his own voice and it just honestly made me never want to even try to write a book because I've totally been there and and I'm just talking about for long articles you know I mean I I can't imagine oh it just seems kind of horrific so yeah I mean it was (laughs) and the thing is I feel so passionately about this subject and I think 
you know, when I was at, when I was, you know, running Tandem Learning, and those are the projects we did. I mean, that was the work that we did, was um, really focused on immersive design. So I had always kind of felt like I was, I had to do an educational process in working with companies or as I talked to people about what it was that we did before we could actually get to talking about an actual project, I'd kind of have to walk them through the process and why we approached design the way we did. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't anything new, you know, it wasn't anything that I had to do a lot of research about. I, I had been practicing it for so long, but that process of putting it all down on paper and mm-hmm. making sure that it was clear and getting all the examples and it, it just got to the point and I think, you know, Ruben's funny because he and I both started our books at the same time and around the time that he was finishing, which is a while ago, his book is out. Mm-hmm. Um, he would call me and say, I can't possibly look at this another day. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I just need to be done with it. I can't ever look at it again. Like, and I, I know that now it's a little bit behind him, but he was actually joking with me. At and he said, um, your technology he said, yeah, my marriage is still recovering from writing that book. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it's definitely, and maybe the other piece is when you have kids, like that that attention focus or ability to concentrate for long periods of time is split up. You know, you're yeah. you're working time, you've got a family and um, things. You have to constantly prioritize where you're spending your time. So, right. Um. I, that being said, I totally do it again, but I would do it differently. You know, it, it's it's. Let me get this one out first and get it done. But, but um, how would you do I, it differently? I think um, I think I would write it more like blog posts. So one of the <laughs> one of the strategies that Carl gave me that I um, found really helpful was like instead of thinking of it as writing a chapter, thinking it, think of it as writing a series of blog posts, and like write as if you're writing a blog post um, because. I, I am maybe, I don't know how other people blog or how they find it, but I usually write a blog post in like 15 or 20 minutes. Like I don't spend a lot of time. Like I wait until a thought's most fully baked in my head and then I just dump it and post it. Like that's, I don't overthink it. And so when I thought about, oh, what if I just like took everything in my brain and just like wrote it down in chunks? and put those chunks together (laughs) and then so I think that would help and the other thing um that I think I would do is is I've seen a lot of people do this and I I understand why now is to get other people to contribute pieces or parts Mm -hmm. um because to Ruben's point of you're like so wrapped up in your own head for so long I think the balance of getting other people's ideas and, and opinions and having them um collaborator or contribute um helps one lessen your workload um but two also kind of add some depth and breadth to the the book so right so uh just a quick from a tool perspective um what did did you you i mean you said um i guess the next one might be more blog style but uh um, for this one, did you did you use anything specific? Did you use Scrivener or anything like that? No, I, I mean I probably should. <laughs> <laughs> I did. the The thing that was 
um, that was good about this book was it forced me to look at across the industry at best practices. And it also allowed me to look at what technologies people were using to create these types of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, because the book case studies cover everything from mobile devices to augmented reality to 3D kind of um, virtual environments and virtual worlds, which are two different things. Um, and to just websites or, or experiences that were created through linking social media tools and experiences. Um, kind of the whole game engines, the whole breadth of different technologies and how different technologies can create different types of immersion or different types of experiences. So I spent a lot of time, like almost a whole chapter talking about avatars um, and kind of the, the psychological process that people go through when they use avatars. Um, and it was, that was interesting um, to kind of go through and look at the research that's going on at um, Stanford Human Inter- Interaction. Mm-hmm. It HRs. I don't remember what initials are now. Um, but the Human Interaction Lab um, and the research they're doing on our ability to learn through avatars in virtual environments. Um, found a bunch of data. You know, it's that's another thing that I think um, is sometimes tough in our industry is to marry the research to practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, who's actually doing research? And is it good research? Are they looking at more than an of three? <laughs> you know, like, like a very... <laughs> Very, you know, there's a lot of qualitative stuff that's written, but not a lot of quantitative data. Right. Um, so, being able to kind of dig in and look at real research findings around um, different design practices and applications was pretty cool. Um, for somebody who talked about virtual worlds for years, and you know, at the point that they were super cool, and still talked about it when they weren't so. Um, it was interesting to see a lot of the research data and finding an application of good uses of that technology so so yeah it was that part was fun Um, and I always love to talk about people who are doing good work Mm -hmm. Um, and most of those companies are still fairly small you know they're not they're not Microsoft, they're not Google. They're, you know, pretty small. Um, they're not Adobe. <laughs> they're pretty small right. tech companies. They're experimenting and using different things. Um, so I was actually curious when you when you were talking about that the first time, like the different tools that uh, you you mentioned in the book that you thought were really innovative and were were used for really good purposes. Do you want to call some of those out? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about my very favorite first. <laughs> um, my very favorite, and and very few people have heard of it, um, is an augmented reality uh, app, and and it's actually open source, open source code, um, and it's called Aris, A R I S, and it was developed out of the University of Wisconsin, and it's an augmented reality uh, mobile game engine. 
and uh, they're they're using it with junior high kids to build games, mm-hmm. uh, and it's storyline driven. You can have characters and decision making, and the the game actually um, it's pretty dependent on geolocation still, and and you know geolocation sensors not being as as finely tuned as today as they probably will be in the near future. Um, it still requires you to, to have um, targets kind of around a, a different an area. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> as you walk through an experience, you go to locations. Um, one of the, the example I talk about is in the book as a game. Eh, they call it, I don't even remember what they call it. They call it like a immersive documentary or something, but it's called Dow Day. And there was, uh, back in 1967, there was a riot, or I think they call it a heated protest. Madison. And uh, it was during Vietnam War and Dow Chemical came on, uh, on site on campus to recruit um, students to come work for them. And they were developing napalm. And so a bunch of students did not think that was very cool. And they staged a protest that Dow Chemical was on their campus. And it turned into the, a riot and the police were called in. And they it, was, it wasn't a good two days. Um, so when they, they built Eris, this technology, they decided to recreate the events of those two days uh-huh. um, in 1967. And if you happened to Wisconsin and you go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus, you can install the Eris app and walk around. It'll it'll tell you where to walk around on the campus. And when you get to different locations, if you hold up your phone, it will show you photographs, what it looked like at the location in 1967. Wow. And you play the role of a reporter. And as you go to each location, you're interviewing different people that... Um, are participating in in those protests in some way. So some of the characters are students, some of them are police officers, some of them are Dow Chemical employees, and you get to learn about their experience um, during the Dow Day um, protests. Very wow, interesting. <laughs> um, the way that they have game uh, a game engine kind of backend, so you can score um, the fact. It's open source, and anybody now can go and download it and get the code and create their own games. Um, you know, uh, sometimes that's the benefit of these things coming out of universities is that um, there's a bunch of grad students that say, hey, wouldn't it be cool? And then they build it, and then it's publicly available. Um, so that's that's probably one of my very favorite technologies that I talked about, and I think is indicative of where um, immersive tech is going. Um, and it's certainly from a, a game designer background, I, it's fascinating to me that they have been able to incorporate so many elements of game design in really large um, mobile and augmented reality in a way to tell stories. So, Can you, um, is there some kind of online experience that, that shows any part of that to your knowledge? I don't know. Hold on. I think it's just eris.org. Um, I'm going to have to do a little investigation. Yeah, we can, I probably have a bookmarked. 
Um, yeah, we can add it to the show notes later too. Nobody get on the internet. <laughs> yeah, no, we can link that up and try to find that later. No, it's not aris.org that sends you to AIDS research and information services. Don't go there. Um, <laughs> no, definitely don't go there. <laughs> not to, you know, tell you about the, uh, <laughs> it won't tell you about the Dow Day event. Um, we'll find it. No worries. Or you so, can look it up later. You can actually so see a demo. Um, it's erisgames.org. I was very close. Um, let's see. Uh, cool kind of, you know, there's there's everything from very high-end um, 3D rendered game engines, um, which, to be honest, most organizations aren't going to invest in or do they probably have the resources or time or money to build um, something that complex um, but there are some some interesting uh, games that have been built with Unity I, I talk a lot about augmented reality games um, which should be no surprise to either of you since I spent the better part of two years when we were, when we were at Tandem um, building them out but we did some cool work um, with a couple different organizations around um, kind of building out those uh, those types of games. And, and I got to actually talk about a, a game that we built for Granger, um, which I don't think we've ever talked about publicly too much. So really interesting, cool customer support um, game that we created around launching their new e-commerce site. So a much more businessy <laughs> example. Um, and, and that was, that was a fun project um, to do. And it, it was great that I got to write about it and it's, I'm excited. It's going to be in the book. Um, I'm trying to think of what other really cool kind of technology stuff. There's, um, there was the Maryland, Virtual Patient Project, I think it's MVP, um, where, where they're actually building um, patient profiles for using artificial intelligence um, so that clinicians can go in and practice um, diagnostic interviews and selecting diagnostic, te- diagnostic tests to run for virtual patients. And uh, based on what treatment options you choose, the patients either get better or worse and exhibit different um, signs. So each patient has their own kind of um, clinical disease model running in the background. Um, It's really, really interesting combination of um, using artificial intelligence technology and and patient modeling. Um, All the big data that people talk about, they took all of the data uh, common um, diseases and synthesized it to create patient cases to um, generate expected responses for diagnostic tests, et cetera, for these patients. And um, and then they built in all of the, the dialogue so that when a clinician would interview the patient, um, depending on, you know, what the clinician asked, they would get specific information that either would be helpful or not so much in making the diagnosis. That was a very, you know, very cool project. So that was um 
I did some work last year at Up to All of Us with somebody who worked in a hospital, and we basically concepted that exact interaction. Um, and I'm so I'm it it was very cool. And again, we were like, oh, we can you know synthesize all the data. You have all of this patient data, blah blah blah, you know. And uh, I'm just so thrilled that like that's actually that I know that that's actually been done because since then I've thought that would just be such a cool, it seems like useful, effective, hopefully effective project. Um, that's very cool. Yeah, I it it warms my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See kind of the the intersection of the analytics piece and technology and good design principles and you know and with a very clear focus and purpose of what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and that was actually, they were doing data collection and, and pretty in-depth research on the clinical outcomes. So that's very cool. Um, Wouldn't it be nice if everybody did it that way? <laughs> if, every, if everybody cared and actually, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, aren't grumpy pants. Yeah, well, well you know, it's, <laughs> it's it sad that that's the exception is all I'm saying. We're talking about cool stuff tonight. I know. Well, cool. and I'm pushing but, people to make more cool stuff is what I'm saying. Okay. I mean, Meaningful I think cool stuff. one of the problems actually with writing the book was that while there's cool stuff out there, there's not a lot <laughs> that demonstrates exactly. really good. Um, there are pockets and, and I tried to pull examples that showed all different types of um, technology, you know, choices, and I tried to show kind of a range of business issues from, you know, improving complex decision making, which is kind of that clinical uh, diagnostic tool, to, um, you know, how do you do performance support? How do you do kind of immersive learning in a in a performance support context? Um, which is where augmented reality often comes in. Um, how do you help people improve their interpersonal skills or um, collaboration um, training? And some, some of that's game design and some of it could potentially be avatar interactions because of the transfer of um, a skill from avatar interactions to, to human interactions. So, you know, it, it was like, okay, how can I find good examples that demonstrate the design principles, but are also relevant to an audience, um, to a potentially diverse audience of people who might be reading. Because right. um, I was very worried that I would, you know, throw out a virtual world example and then someone will say, well, we're never going to do virtual world. Or, you know, there would be a mobile example and they would say, well, I mean, there's all kinds of objections, I think, that, that people raise um, towards technology when in my process technology was always the last thing we considered yeah. or close to the last thing we considered I mean we, we really looked more closely at what was the skill we were trying to teach um, what was the problem we were trying to solve <laughs> what was the, the issue and then and then say well what technology would help us recreate this experience so cool did you come across any, so just from a um, different, well, some some 
perspective is of, I don't know if I want to call it like, uh, inexpensive or, um, easy to implement, you know, were there any that were, you know, let's say there's like a small team or, or even a small business is doing some training, you know, for, for nurses or, or a, a business is doing some small things for nonprofits, maybe, um, with a low budget, things like that. Were there, were there any tools or, um, a, you know, even more open source stuff like the Eris thing that yeah. stood out to you that would be useful? Yeah, there's, there's definitely some different open source, um, augmented reality game platforms out there. Um, but, but honestly people could build their own. Um, you really only need like a, a fairly simple, uh, backend database. So if you had a, a reasonable developer, you could probably build, um, a, an ARG engine yourself, um, with not too much effort or, um, investment. Um, but, and then there are some, pretty interesting lower cost 3d environments and, and virtual world kind of installations. There's, um, there's a platform called thinking worlds. Um, that was, I think Caspian learning is the name of the company that built it. Um, they were a, um, serious game company out of the UK and this is the tool that they built for, um, their instructional designers to use to build these 3D simulations and games. Um, and when they had kind of fully built out the toolkit, then they said, well, why don't we sell this? Um, I, I don't remember how much the academic licenses are. I want to say it's a couple hundred dollars, but even a corporate license is $1,500. Um, and it's not a, it was built for instructional designers so it's not a, a development language. It's it's very object oriented um, okay. tool, and from from my perspective, obviously there are limitations. Um, you know, anytime you you have kind of a toolkit, you're kind of a little bit beholden to what they give you to work with. Um, but really interesting from the ability to kind of create these three D virtual environments. Um, and create game. It has a game engine in the background, which um, Second Life, although free, doesn't have a lot of the the things that you, you need to do to track learning. Um, so if that's important and you need to actually be able to track decision-making or track behaviors or score something or none of those things are easily available within bigger platforms. Um, but Thinking World has it built in. So that's, for me, that's one of the cooler platforms. And, and let's see, what else do I use? VenueGen um, is, they're now positioning themselves a little bit more uh, for teachers and as a virtual classroom tool. But um, historically, and over the last few years, they had been more focused on enterprise and being a, a virtual meeting or kind of live interaction platform. Um, it's cheap, if not free. And I think actually, um, have a subscription model, but it's only like last I checked, I wanted to say it was like $30 a month. Like it was very low cost. Um, but for a lot of live, like real time synchronous training, that's a a pretty good platform. Um, and they built in when they built that platform, um, 
the ability for their, you to control the, um, what, like facial gestures, hand motions, posture, a lot of um, more refined control over the avatar for nonverbal communication um, expression. So that's that platform's interesting in that you have a lot more control over how your avatar is nonverbally reacting to the other people in the room. Um, i trying to think of what other kind of cheaper, fun to jump in and play with tools there are. If it's a good time to interrupt, is it a good time to interrupt? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, you've, you've hit on the, uh, a couple of points about avatars and particularly about Stanford's research, which I haven't kept up with lately, but I did because it was really, really very relevant to my, um, my master's research. Um, and I'm kind of, I'm going to just try to pick your brain about this and also related to, you know, whatever tools do this. Um, I, uh, for my, I, I did a, a very, very minor, easy research study um, for my MED um, that was about, um, it was it was basically trying to determine whether using um, a very refined tool that can really get all of the lip syncing right um, and different gestures and whatever, whether that had any effect on retention or memory or anything like that, as opposed to just hearing the audio and looking at a picture of the, uh, you know, the coach or the, the learning agent or whatever you wanted to call it on the screen. Um, and, and I was not able to show any improvement um, when I used the unnamed $10,000 piece of software that you see often at conferences and the expo. <laughs> um, Sorry. And <laughs> I, I was not able to determine any difference, which does, doesn't, you know, me, it could mean that measure, the measurement tools were not able to, you know, were not refined enough to determine. But um, I'm kind of curious, since you've recently done research, whether you've seen anything more in that area or whether, you know, what your opinion is based on what you've seen, what you would go with as a, as a designer and developer. Yeah, so fidelity of the avatar or realism um, really plays no role <laughs> from all the research I've seen in yeah, um, improving learning retention or, or any of those things. But there is a difference in whether or not there is a an avatar or some character present. Um, yes. And so, yeah, so it could be an animated paperclip and people would still potentially get emotionally invested in making this, you know, uh, animated paperclip as happy yeah. as potentially a, you know, very um, realistic avatar person. Yeah, it, there there doesn't seem to be any correlation with. What I found really interesting when I was doing this research is that um, they were sharing Stanford's research, um, which basically says that 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 having. Um, that character present does help improve engagement retention, basically all the good stuff that you want. Um, and they were, they were actually distributing that Stanford research as a white paper to support their product. But 
they don't supply, and I haven't seen any research saying that it needs to be walking, talking, lip syncing very realistically, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think it's just kind of interesting is all that, that there's yeah. that big mental leap that they expect people to make and which apparently a lot of people do. Um, well, it's, you know, it, I think it is interesting because a lot of people think, um, when you talk about avatars, so th- there's a lot of people have very strong reaction to the, when, as soon as you talk about avatars. Um, and especially when I was talking a lot about virtual worlds, um, you know, one of the main topics was, do we allow people to customize their avatars? Um, like how much do we allow them to customize? What does it mean to have a business professional avatar? Um, you know, do you have to allow for different body types? And, you know, so what's interesting is that the ability to, the more you can customize an avatar, the more closely aligned you feel with the avatar. But it doesn't mean that you have to look like the avatar, <laughs> nor does it mean um, that uh, that the avatar is is somehow a um, you don't have to look like it, and you don't. It doesn't have to be anything like you. It does. It doesn't have to be um, even realistic. It doesn't have to be in three D for you to feel a connection. It's the that personalization mm-hmm. piece that seems to be the major connection. And the more you're able to customize or personalize an avatar, um, the more connection you feel, and more of the emotional response. So um, does that emotional response translate into better outcomes? Typically, yeah. yeah. So the, the sooner that a, a person identifies themselves with an avatar, um, that is usually the, the key indicator of um, learning transfer. And, and almost, well, I would say of all of the studies that I looked at, and there were a lot, um, all of the studies showed that learning as an avatar in a virtual environment produced equal, if not better, outcomes than real-life practice. And -hmm. the reason was because you could control for variables. And you could also give uh, predictive and consistent feedback. Um, So people wouldn't necessarily get as far down an incorrect path without getting corrective feedback within um, the virtual environment. And you can also present a lot more varied and controlled situations than what you might be exposed to in real life. So one of the things that I talk about is that kind of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours of experience or 10 years of experience to create expertise. Part of that is because whenever you're, you're presented with a new situation, you learn from it. So over 10 years or 10,000 hours, you're constantly learning from errors and maybe it takes 10,000 hours to have all of the, the range of experiences that you need to have to build that expertise. What if you could actually reduce that by giving like control training experiences to present them with situations that they can learn from at, in a faster pace and in a more controlled environment. Yeah. What if you could speed it up? Yeah. 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 Like what if that 10,000 hours is just because of variability and unpredictability of when you're getting the experience and how much you're learning from. 
Um, and and I should so. say, by the way, that, that this echoes a lot of Ruth Clark's research as well in terms of simulations being able to actually um, produce better outcomes in shorter amount of time, et cetera. Again, because you don't have to deal with all of those real, all of that real world variability as much. Um, and also with the fidelity of media, um, that was sort of where I started in my research um, that, that just, you know, does it matter if it's uh, photorealistic uh, or a photo or versus a line drawing, you know, in terms of the, the media that you're looking at. So I think that her, hers is not necessarily so much into virtual worlds, but I, I think it's really interesting how much of it is very applicable. It's like the yeah, same thing I mean, out. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon, you know, thinking about how can we design to allow people to practice a, a skill um, and, and what does that mean? Uh, as learning professionals, I think to think about designing for practice instead of designing for learning or training. Um, and, you know, how, how would you think about the process differently of what you're designing if the outcome was that someone had to show you how to do something or someone had to actually perform something better? What is, you know, how would you actually encourage them practice so that they can actually improve their performance it's it's a but you want to tie it to actual performance shocking. that's insane so, yeah. that's insanity <laughs> well a big portion of my my book was about like i i don't i was about to say i don't care about learning objectives and kind of i don't because i don't care what you know i care what you do yes and that's so, right people <laughs> bring on the hate mail <laughs> so so learning objectives are cute and you could know lots of things but if you're actually not doing what you need to be doing i'm tweeting that right now (laughs) learning objectives are cute they're adorable how do you think learning objectives tie to performance um (laughs) but it's it's an interesting you know corner that we back ourselves into when we get into conversations I, I love talking to Ellen Wagner about this because um, very often, you know, it, it, we talk about the language that learning professionals use and, and kind of all of our slang and lingo and, and how we need to talk the language of business um, to be able to communicate our value. And, and for me, a big part of that is, well, we should be talking in terms of performance and improving business outcomes, not what do people know. Um, and so when I am looking at, you know, designing an immersive learning experience, the success metrics should parallel or be aligned with whatever your actual metrics are on your job. So if you're rewarded for, you know, shortening customer service calls, well, then that should be what you should be measured against in your training or this immersive learning environment. And if you're rewarded for increasing profitability and in your sales then that's what you should be practicing so it's we don't usually think in those terms you know we a lot of a lot of what's tracked and oh gosh i'm gonna really get myself in trouble but a lot of what's tracked in an lms (laughs) is fairly meaningless right like okay i finished a course does that mean anything can you do anything better maybe not (laughs) so you know, it's a we back ourselves into these data corners of what we're tracking, what we're measuring, what what we are communicating out as our objectives. Right. You know, versus yeah. what's actually valuable <laughs> information. 
Yeah, uh, you know, well, I mean, I could that, like. I, I don't know. I but perhaps I I just hang around the wrong crowds and have had exceptional influences in my career. But like, I, I duh, right, right. It seems so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I have, I have a question. Corey. So, so I'm the not com- trying to say I'm smart. I'm <laughs> saying I've had good influences in my short career. <laughs> so, the. Okay, so the, the 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 companies that are doing it right, the or the organizations, whatever you know, academic or business or whatever, um, that are getting baseline data to to measure against um, from a performance perspective, are is there anything that they're using to capture that information or that you're aware of that's um, you know can is there anything we can discuss that would enlighten businesses to you know uh, it's 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 not complicated it doesn't seem to me um but it it's more of an awareness thing or a like you said just sort of this is just what we've always done so we're just going to keep doing this crap and that's what we always talk about yeah i mean to be honest i i i always try to find out what other systems the company's using to to measure their success metrics. So, so for example, <laughs> if you have a sales organization, they may use a tool like salesforce.com. And if they're using Salesforce, then they're getting their sales team is getting reports on a weekly basis or daily basis sometimes of how close they are to their goal, all kinds of metrics, right? Salesforce can track all kinds of things. It's right. it's, you know, what you I was going to say garbage in, garbage out, but it, it's, you know, if you put good data in, you get good data out and vice versa. But the, but every company is looking at something, right? Like no organization is looking at nothing, hopefully. I mean, that would be, <laughs> yeah. it'd be kind of crazy. <laughs> but hopefully they're Maybe. looking at something. Maybe it's not the right something, but they're at least looking at something to, to track themselves. And especially as you get to larger organizations and public companies, I mean, they're accountable for that information. So we should be... While that may not be particularly helpful in guiding our design, it should be helpful in in kind of benchmarking our success or our progress or or the delta in performance. And yes, absolutely, there are lots of factors that influence performance that are outside of training that all needs to be accounted for and and looked at. But you should be able to. Um, tracks certain metrics over time. The other thing that I, I recommend when people are kind of designing in this way is that you look at both the individual performance metrics and the organizational performance metrics. So that's where those kind of systems metrics come into play, where you want to be you know, looking at, am I tracking an individual performance improvement? And, and that's usually their manager benchmarking whatever success metrics they're measuring against and then there's kind of the organizational performance and are those things aligning if not why you know like starting to look at data in that way um i think is really interesting and is actually important if you're trying to tie individual performance to the larger organizational performance right i i i talk about an example um in the book, it's kind of a, it's a game design um, principle, and it, it 
this um, this analogy I actually pulled from uh, Michael Ferguson, who uh, is the CEO of Ayogo Games. You bought Tandem. Um, and he talks about, they build a lot of um, kind of behavioral science-focused games, uh, health-related, to get people to, to make more healthy choices. And um, a lot of the games that they initially built were around diabetes management. And uh, he, he calls it the single cup of coffee problem, that people overvalue the decision and reward right in front of them um, and lose sight of long-term positive or negative right. consequences. So if you've got a cup of coffee in front of you and you have diabetes and uh, you say, oh, I really want to put sugar in this one cup of coffee and putting sugar in this one cup of coffee isn't going to hurt me. Right. Well, that's true. <laughs> putting sugar in that one cup of coffee is not going to hurt you and probably isn't going to impact your health overall all that much. It's the cumulative effect of all those decisions over time mm-hmm. that actually have negative consequences. It's it's the same issue with a lot of performance uh, behaviors or a lot of things that are impacting people's performance. It's not one individual decision. It's kind of the cumulative cumulative decisions over time. And that's where kind of both looking at the individual performance but also looking at the organization performance metrics can help you relate here's what the consequences are of me doing this action has not only to my performance but to the whole organization and drawing those parallels. So That is hitting me right in the training regimen right now. Oh, man. (laughs) I'm feeling that. It's like you're talking directly to me. I'm I'm training to climb a mountain. She she kind of is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait. Um. That that's good stuff. Uh, it, the 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 point about it, the being, you know, how immediate decisions impact the long term is. There, I was reading something the other day that was exactly a, along those lines. It was it was health related to the same thing, and it was, you know, the the easy thing is to make the the quick decision about something immediately, right? But but not looking at the long term consequences, or even if it's positive, not looking at the long term benefits. Um, I overvalue the glass of wine in front of me. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, and it's in, in the, in the, in the, no, the data around it. I, I, I'll need to, I'll, I'll have to figure out which article it was, but, um, because I, I'll link it up in the show notes because the data around it's crazy how, how the, the percentage like the, of overvaluing is. It's, oh, insane. it's insane. Oh, yeah. it's insane because our brains are, uniquely create i mean it's what's interesting about game design is you can once you kind of understand those cognitive quirks and how the human brain works you can then mess with them or (laughs) create ways of leveraging them so a lot of what um health related behavior games focus on are creating some external value or some external reward to make you decide i'm not going to add that sugar in my cup of coffee that's sitting in front of me and some of it's social. Like I'm not going to do it because I have three other people that are in this, you know, it, in this competition with me or in this game with me and they're all watching to see if I'm going to add that sugar to my coffee. Mm-hmm. It's what motivate. I mean, social motivation is, is insanely effective 
because as soon as you know, and that's actually, Judy, kind of circling back, that's why avatars um, of any kind are beneficial in training because people feel like there's someone else who's invested in their performance, even if it is an animated shoe. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't even matter what it is. They suddenly feel like there's some other entity that's invested in their performance and it, in, it in, improves and increases performance, changes behavior. So I think the tricky part for a lot of kind of the gamification um, elements is how do you then, like over time, remove that extrinsic motivation and transfer that to be, I'm now intrinsically motivated to do those behaviors because I've lost weight and I feel better about myself or I'm, you know, I've increased my performance to a point that I'm getting a promotion. And so now I know I'm being rewarded by other people for these behaviors in things that are outside of that game context or that, that um, reward mechanism. I was just having some conversations at work this week, maybe last week about this. It's blending when you work over the weekend at all, they, they blend together, but um, about um, um, factors of influence and there's, there's motivation and then there's ability on a personal level, on a social level, and on an organizational level. And to try to actually affect change, the the theory is, or the research actually uh, by this one company shows, that you need to, you need to attack all of, uh, at least four of those aspects. Either motivation or ability on a social, uh, or uh, individual social and uh, organizational level. So that's, that's, I, I don't know. To to me, I don't know if anybody else is going to like synthesize this information in the same way, or if it's helpful. But um, it's just, I don't know. It's just funny how things come together. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm going to try to link up this so that you guys won't think I'm completely weird. But I'm almost at the bottom of my bottle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and for my coworkers who I'm going to try to get to listen to this episode, that was the thing. Okay, so. <laughs> um, so is Second Life dead? No, I think, you know, it's interesting. There's, there were just a couple of research studies um, that were published around Second Life. I think um, one of the interesting things that it, Second Life to me has always been like a testing ground. I don't even know if I, 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 I mean, obviously I've known you guys for a little while, and but I don't know if you knew me when I first started Tandem. I spent three months in Second Life. Um, I don't want to say 24 hours a day cause it wasn't, but it was a good 12 to 14 hours a day. Um, and I did it intentionally, um, because I wanted to understand, it was kind of my own little research study. I wanted to understand what would drive someone to live in that environment or go back or what would kind of drive someone to, um, become so immersed or so what, identified with their avatar that that was their preferred method of interaction with other people. And I learned a lot in those three months. I also learned that when that time period was over and I decided, okay, I've, I've had enough, like I needed to step away from it completely (laughs) um, and basically cut myself off. Um, But the tool itself is, it's a kind of a fascinating sociological experiment of how do people interact with each other? What does it mean to be anonymous? Um, 
what types of behaviors do you engage in, think are acceptable or unacceptable if it's not tied to your identity? Um, and a lot of really interesting things have emerged from Second Life um, that I think will continue to be leveraged. There, We've been talking about health a lot, actually, which is kind of funny, but there are a lot of really interesting um medical treatment and disease management um, opportunities and potential in Second Life. That's actually the study that was published this week. There was a, a woman that had Parkinson's that um, was going into Second Life and interacting with other avatars, other people, and her disease improved. It actually improved her and reduced her symptoms of Parkinson's. Um, and I I don't know to the extent at which that's um, will be seen across, you know, everyone with Parkinson's, but the fact that it can be used to um, not just for a training environment, but as a, as a communication tool and, and kind of a social interaction um, platform, I think will continue it. Back a few years ago, they tried a little experiment. (laughs) I'm calling it a little experiment. I'm sure that's not how Linden Labs would explain it, um, <laughs> where they they created a whole business-focused side mm-hmm. of Second Life. And it just, it's like one of those things where technology was designed for a particular purpose, and then you try to retrofit it to meet more needs than it was actually designed for. Second Life was meant to be a completely wide open user generated content kind of build your own adventure kind of platform. And when people were trying to create much more structured environments in second life, it never really took um, because the platform was not designed for it. And so it, it wasn't a good fit. And so I don't think it's dead. I don't think it'll probably dead for a long time unless it evolves into something different. Um, But I still don't think that Second Life is the tool that we'll be going to in five years and saying, okay, we're going to, you know, now do a training exercise in Second Life. I I would find that very hard to believe. (laughs) Um, I was really interested in it for a while. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not a hardcore developer-y type person, but I'd say I'm above average in terms of technical ability and learning things quickly. And I found it very difficult, honestly. And I I just was like, you know, I, I was trying to have the attitude of, you know, oh, people, people will get used to it. You know, you could totally use this for a lot of cool stuff as soon as people learn how to use it. But then I really never could and couldn't get over that. But I don't know. Yeah, I just, I, I saw oh, the hype cycle the, for education the other day and virtual worlds yeah. are like at the bo- bottom of the trough of disillusionment, which I, I assume that's kind of what you mean when you're saying it's not cool right now. And I know that Second Life is generally not, you know, it, the, the perception of it is pretty low. So I thought I'd throw that question out there. Yeah, I mean, there's no when you're in the trough of disillusionment, there's nowhere to go but up. So that's good, right. <laughs> um, unless of course they think you're like going away. So, so I always kind of laugh when, um, you know, and in my last you know four or five years, I kind of followed virtual worlds all up the, you know, 
peak of inflated expectations and down <laughs> down into the low valley where we are now. Um, but I do think that there are particular uses for virtual worlds. I think um, the military and, and government segments are using them much more um, than probably any other any other segment. Pharmaceutical companies don't talk about it too much, but they're actually using them. And any company that has global um, kind of global spread, the Asian Pacific um, markets use virtual worlds all the time. Avatars are very common. Um, it, we we tend to be very U.S. centric in our training and kind of you know technology trends look, um, but in customers that I've worked with that have uh, kind of that the Asian um, Asia pack uh, contingency, they use virtual worlds all the time. They use them socially and they use them for business. And um, so it will be interesting to see kind of how they evolve and where they end up landing. I think um, there are some really good use cases for them. But again, it has to be one of those things where you look at it and say, um, you know, here's the problem we're trying to solve. And this is the right platform to solve that problem for X, Y, Z reasons. And Judy, to your point, Second Life, really tough to learn. I mean, very tough. Um, the learning curve was ridiculous. Thank and you. I might, I might cut you guys down are, on all my drinking in the future. I, I feel very validated now. <laughs> Do you guys remember Google Lively? Does it ring a bell at all? Hmm. I don't think so, I ever... No. So Google tried to... I love Google. I, I, I'm not going to talk poorly of Google, but Google hasn't done social very well. Well, up until, you know, Google Plus or Circles or... Well, I have not Even fully still. embraced the circle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's well, clearly yeah. a hearty <laughs> recommendation right. that they're doing yeah. social great now. <laughs> well, 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 I have not embraced them. I know some people, you know, are adamant big, you know, Google Plus fans. But Google released a virtual world. Um, that was, it was Google Lively, and it was billed as, um, like, a user-friendly virtual world. And... Um, it was kind of at the height of the virtual world hype cycle and everybody was talking about it and everybody's trying to figure out when, you know, the big players were going to get involved in virtual world. And Lively was really the only significant investment that one of kind of the major tech companies made in virtual technology, virtual world environments. And uh, I think it was live for about six months. <laughs> and... They they tried to take the opposite strategy of Second Life and making it like super easy entry to get in there and easy navigation and and all that like actually was pretty good. The problem was as soon as you set up your avatar and you went in the world, you're like, okay, now what? And what I think almost every company has neglected to address is that that kind of core reason of why you would use that technology. Like, right. what is it you're trying to accomplish? Why would somebody want to go in there? And why is that the best technology to use better than anything else they already are using? Yes. And, you know, it, and if you don't have a good rationale for using one technology, a new technology over your existing technology, 
chances are people aren't going to like all jump on board. And no one did. I mean, everyone went in there, kind of experimented, and then there was basically nothing to do. Right. <laughs> so everyone laughed. So kind of like Google Plus. Yeah, kind yeah. of. I mean, but here's the... <laughs> I'm sorry. There's... I actually... Here's the thing. I actually love Google Plus. I don't want to get off too, too big of a tangent here, but be, because there there are compelling reasons to use Google Plus. There are compelling logical reasons that it's a superior platform than Twitter or Facebook or your own blogging platform or whatever. And I still don't go there. Yeah, I don't yeah, go there either. Part of the issue is with where people are, right? So there's there's that's, right. that's part of it. So one of the things that Second Life had going for it was that that's where a lot of people were because it was an early... Um, instance and early, you know, early adoption or whatever for was Second Life is like, oh, let's go to Second Life, and so they had a lot more. If you know, Lively may have been more successful had it been first to market or second to market, maybe. Um, but um, yeah, I, so that's part of the, you know, because Google Plus adding some really cool features, right? I mean, there's there's um, you know, obviously like uh, the, the Hangouts and things like that are are cool, and there's lots of different things that are really great. But the fact that they were so late to the game has killed it. So, um, but, you you know. Have you read Eric Reese's Lean Startup? Yes. Well, so, (laughs) (laughs) I've, I've, I've perused it. I, I actually I checked it out because I'm, I was reading, I actually was trying to read The $100 Startup and Lean Startup and That's not what that Business Model Generation all at the same time. Oh, well, then I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. No, it's it's I, it's it's caused by Wayne's World. You can trace this to Wayne's World. I promise. Okay, well, just there you go. just trust me on this that one. That makes sense. On. That makes perfect sense to me. Then that's fine. So <laughs> I, I, I. Um, anyways, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't read it all the way through, but I, I, I have it on my list. Um, so go ahead, Kareem. What was your point? Uh, so it, the whole book and and kind of what he's built his career on now is his experience in the virtual world industry, and the difference between a really overhyped, unsuccessful company that he was part of. And then he iterated on that and actually created a phenomenally successful virtual world platform in Asia. Um, and and the lessons that he talked about are not specific to virtual worlds. They're just strategy and process and, and iteration. And um, But I saw him speak at GDC um, and this was years ago now, it must have been 2009 or 10. And it was the session that he presented, it was before his book came out and any of the stuff was out. Um, the session he presented was billed as a debrief of, and I, it's embarrassing, I don't even remember the name of the, the virtual world company he was part of that failed. But it was supposed to be a debrief of why the company failed and then the lessons learned from the second company that he had started, um, which was wildly successful and so he turned this presentation basically into his book um or he had already been in the process of writing the book and and this was just his way of advertising it but um i always had this like personal affinity to what he to the story because what he was writing about was so relevant to virtual worlds as well um and he's kind of backed away from even talking about it in terms of virtual worlds but if you ever, like, if you read the book and you get um, and read the lessons, it's a really interesting um, insight into what kind of the problem was at its core in the virtual world technology space. Um, so 
not only is it a good book from a business perspective, but it's interesting insight into that particular technology and some of the problems that um, accompanied it as it was, you know, totally overhyped and everyone was believing their own hype and everyone was, you know, patting each other on the back like, we're going to be so awesome and everybody's going to be using these technologies in two years and nobody's going to talk anymore. We'll just all talk through avatars and it's going to butter your bread and tie your shoes. <laughs> you know, like it was, everyone was so excited and it, it just, it wasn't, you know, I mean, you, you, and had they been able to look past their own, you know, laptops, they probably would have seen that, you know, there were a lot of real problems, um, with the technology. And the only other thing I'll say about virtual world, and this is one of the funniest, I've been to a lot of conferences. <laughs> you guys have been to a lot of conferences. Um, but the very first We've conference I went to after I started, I know, right? <laughs> the very first conference I went to after I started Tandem, uh, I had, I had been on site at a client launch meeting that we had done the training for. And I left that at, meeting down in Florida of all places, shocking, and flew up to New York City to attend uh, this virtual worlds summit. And I didn't really know anything about virtual worlds at the time, um, but it was the second year of this conference and there was all kinds of money being thrown around and and actually, um, if anyone knows Kevin Cruz, he had a website back in the early late nineties and early two thousands called elearningguru.com. He's like, yeah. no, of yep. don't know. He's not in the learning world anymore. Is that right? Yeah, no, he's, he's talking more about, um, rightly so I could go on and on about Kevin. He, uh, he taught me everything that I know about business and lots, lots more. He was the best boss by far I've ever had. Um, primarily cause he never really acted like he was my boss. Um, but yeah, he's doing a lot of performance evaluation and what makes an organization successful and mentoring and so writing about that stuff now and really great guy. Can't say enough about him. But when I um, left to start my company, he's like, hey, I think you should check out this virtual worlds conference. So by myself, I flew up to this conference. I was one of like three women at the conference and <laughs> and I'm not even lying. I was one of like three women and um I they had a track that they started that year for um, corporate uses or business uses for virtual worlds. And they didn't know how popular it was going to be. So they had it off in the side room that was that probably could hold about 100 people. And they had packed about 300 people in this room. And they had panels with all these technology companies and um, everyone and their brother who had anything to do. IBM was very big at the time into virtual worlds and they had built uh, a virtual, their own custom world called Innovate, um, and a bunch of really, you know, all the big names, all the famous guys in the virtual worlds industry were there, and the whole audience was full of people that worked for financial companies and insurance companies and government and academic institutions, and the audience members would all say, "We really need a world that can do X." And the technology guys up on the panel would say, "We built the world, this world, to do Y." And then, the, and then everybody in the audience would say, "That's great. We don't care about Y. What we really need is X." And the panel would be like, "But don't you see how cool Y is?" 
<laughs> and it went on like that for about two days. Like, no lie. It was wow. like everybody was just speaking a different language. Like, everyone in the audience would say, this is what we really need these technologies to do for us. And all of the people that were building the technologies were saying, don't you see how cool this is? <laughs> and <laughs> and it, was, it was one of those experiences when I left that I thought, there's an opportunity here to try to bridge that gap of what businesses need and what the technology can do, which kind of is what prompted me to really focus on the design process. But the other part of me was like, if these two groups never talk to each other, this technology is dead for this audience. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, ultimately, what happened was that the the technology companies never really could understand what the businesses need or were asking for. And eventually, companies just gave up. And we're like, well, if you guys aren't going to build this in a way that we can use it, then we'll find something else. And, and they did. So interesting little history of Corrine's experience in virtual world. <laughs> but it was, nice. you know, it was a, it was a very, it's a funny technology. It's really fascinating, but it, it, you know, just never lived up to the hype. So, so it's all, it's all uphill from the prop of disillusionment. <laughs> as <you> said, <laughs> It will reach operational right. maturity or whatever it's called. Uh, oh, yeah. Plateau of productivity. Plateau. There yes. You go, the plateau I'm of sorry. That's a different thing. So, so Corrine, um, so I'm out of beer, which means the show is technically over, but it's not yet because I have a question for you. And I, and I think this should be a new thing for the show. But um, make it intelligent, if, please. If you have, so what, what would your advice be? to um let's say a couple of different levels of people in this in learning um you know instructional designers general maybe designers in general um you know in our field um and and maybe management or upper level folks what are one or two things that you would say hey you need to be thinking about this. You need to be doing this. You need to be, you, or you absolutely need to be doing this. Um, oh, that's a good question. So um, that's I'll start at the top. Brian, thank you for rescuing well, I don't know us. if maybe I should, I, I don't know if I should start with like the designer level or the exec level, but yeah, I'll start with the execs. So if to any executives who are listening to this, um, whether they're, <laughs> Whether, whether kind of within the learning segment of the organization or out, um, I would say to challenge yourself to start thinking about not learning as a learning function, but learning as an opportunity for practice. Um, and to really, um, look at the learning function in your organization or that training area, um, and ask them how they're helping um, employees or, you know, whoever they're training within whatever organization, students, um, how they're helping them to practice within the training environment so that when they actually get into their roles and their jobs that um, they have experience and have gotten feedback and know how to perform. Um, For designers... Um, Judy actually talks about this and, and I, I have never been, I've never specifically complimented you, Judy, but I think 
one of my biggest complaints in uh, with instructional designers is that they only learn about instructional design. And there's lots of different types of designers. So my advice would actually be to look at game design. Um, I think game designers at, as an industry um, tend to look at what motivates people to play and engagement. And while they're not specifically looking at learning or practice, they are looking at skill refinement and continual improvement um, and look at that kind of intersection of flow that we're always trying to achieve of, you know, how do we present challenges that are challenging so that people want to try to um, accomplish the goal, but not so hard that they get frustrated. And game designers really kind of look at that science um, in a way that I don't think many other industries do. Um, But those are kind of core human values, curiosity, sense of challenge and accomplishment, um, game designers kind of thrive on creating environments to perfect that. And I say this all with a grain of salt because we all have played really crappy games. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't want to hold up <laughs> game designers as like this, this golden, um, you know, they have all the answers, but it is a good game design, um, makes you want to play over and over. It makes you want to continue to achieve. It makes you want to improve your skill. And those are all things that, as learning professionals, we should be learning from right. and thinking about how to incorporate that into performance improvement. Because ultimately, performance improvement has a lot of parallels to to game uh, accomplishment or game, kind of game right. environment. Well, well and, there, and there are good... I- they're Thank really you, good. I agree. Yeah, because they're really good games that uh, that make you want to or actually make you change behavior. Yeah, and that absolutely. is what leads to you know better your performance improvement. If, yeah. if you know you, you're at the core, it's it, it's changing some kind of behavior at some point. So, Coster, yeah. read it. <laughs> Everyone, yeah, I, I have I uh, have that sitting right next to my bed right now. Uh, for those of you who haven't read A Theory of Fun, it's simple, easy read, lots of pictures, and one of the most valuable books you can start with to, to kind of jumpstart your thinking around game design and engagement. And Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. And not that I've read a ton of them, but it definitely was an excellent starter book for me. Yeah, it's, it's a great introduction and especially gets you thinking about elements of design that I think instructional designers are never really taught to focus on. So. Very cool. Cool. Kareen, thank you. This has been a hell of a fun show. Yeah. uh, Great conversation. uh, Great information. Um, Just thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was super fun and a great excuse to bust out the bottle of wine. So there you go. (laughs) On Fat Tuesday. <laughs> so I gave up soda for for Lent. I don't. I'm not Catholic, and I don't really have to give anything up. But I decided to because yeah, for the hell of it. Right? Well, because you know I, I like to play games, and so this is like gamifying. <laughs> so I gave up soda. But 
for for some reason, and I don't know why, I'm not naming any names, John, who's standing here next to me, I thought last Tuesday was the beginning of Lent, so I've actually given up soda for a week already. <laughs> so, so I was like, wait, it wasn't until today? Well, I mean, I could have been drinking okay. soda this whole last That's week. okay. You can, if, that, since, since you don't really believe in it, you can just advance that. and You can it, just quit a week early. Yeah, you're good to go. I a week early. I think you totally can. Says says the two people who got Mardi Gras badges for checking in on Untapped for this show, Gamified. Right. Excellent. There we go. Perfect. Well, thanks again, and uh, hopefully we'll get the chance to uh, have you back on. That sounds great. Thanks. Judy. <laughs> <laughs> Was it? It was only like a 4.8%. Is it really enough to make you forget? There you have it. Uh. <laughs>